0: so good to be with you today. I'm glad that you're here to worship with us. One of the things that I think about is so important as, a, as somebody who loves God and loves the church, I think every single Sunday, one of the things that I'm thinking to myself is, I'm I'm expectant of God to show up. I think that's one of the best ways that we can come to church, that that if we come with this idea of, I believe that God is going to move in our midst, and I'm going to watch for him. I'm going to see what he's going to do. At that point, church becomes not just a thing that we do in our day. It becomes dynamic. Uh, You you can pray, God, would you lead me? Who who do you want me to to bless today? Maybe there's somebody you want me to pray for. Who can I encourage? God, help me to see you in a new light. Let it be fresh to me. Me. Uh, I think about just the level of expectancy that we have as a church right now as we get ready to to leave this space and then worship together in a brand new worship environment, there's a level of expectancy in my heart, and I hope that it's there for you as well. I mean, we kind of wrap up our time in in this room. I mean, years and years of coming in here, lifting our voices, and people uh, experiencing the presence of God, people giving their life to Jesus Christ in this space. And it's not just this space. We long for God's presence among us. Something unique happens when God is here. And I want you to know God is here. I mean, is, let me ask you this question. It's kind of a theological question. Is God transcendent or is God eminent? In other words, is God transcendent? Is he high and exalted and above all things? Or is God close and intimate and fellowshipping with us and he's here? Which, which is it? Yes right he's both he is transcendent and he is eminent he is he is extreme and magnificent he is above all things and yet he longs to be personal and to meet with us even now there was a survey that was done some time ago In the survey they were interviewing people who had quit church they just left church and so they were asked why why did you quit why did you leave do you know what the number one answer was church is boring Second answer, second most popular answer, it's irrelevant. Church is boring and irrelevant. And I think that the problem, whatever church would lead somebody to believe that God is boring and he is irrelevant, that is a church where there's a number of people who are not expectant of a transcendent yet eminent God to move in their midst. We long for the presence of God to show up. We pray for that. Your staff prays for it. I pray for it. And here's what I know. When God shows up in a unique way to manifest himself among us, we won't be the same. What happens when the presence of God arrives is repentance. Revival begins. He changes us. Because you don't come into the presence of a transcendent God and remain unchanged. And I believe that God wants to do that. Now, when we got together last week and we started talking about a practical atheist, We talked about the fact that a whole lot of people believe that there's a God, but they don't know him. They believe that there's a God, but they just don't have a personal relationship with him. And our theme verse comes from Titus chapter 1 verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So this is somebody who would believe that there is a God, that God exists, But they don't live their lives as if He is real. They they don't put their faith in Him and trust Him and live as one who has a relationship with the God of this universe through His Son Jesus Christ and the empowering indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And when we live our lives as if God does not exist, then we begin to revert to our natural state, which is sinfulness and corruption. And we become more and more corrupt when we live our lives as if God does not exist. And this is something that Paul addressed as he wrote to a pastor named Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter three. I wanna look at this just briefly. Uh, 2 Timothy three, verse one, Paul says this, but understand this, that in the last days, and I think we're in the last days, my opinion, but I we're a whole lot closer to last days than when this was written. We're in the last days. But in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be, Lovers of self. Lovers of money. Proud. Arrogant. Abusive. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. How many of these things do we see uh, among us right now in our culture and in our society? He goes on. Heartless. They'll be unappeasable. Slanderous. Without self-control. Brutal not loving good, he's not done, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. There's a whole lot of people, a whole lot of people in America that would say, there is a God, but they're living their life as if God does not exist. They're living for themselves. The problem is we have a very high view of ourselves, and we have a very low view of God and his holiness. We have a very high view of our autonomy and doing whatever it is we want to do, and a very low view of God's autonomy and doing whatever it is within his will, within his own creation. We have a number of people who believe that there's a God, but they do not fear him. I believe there's a God, but I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. I don't want to obey God. I don't want God telling me what to do. I am not going to make him the Lord of my life. The issue that we're looking at today is there are people who believe that there is a God, but they don't fear him. They don't fear him. And it happens even within Christianity, within the church. We talked about cultural Christianity. There's something called cafeteria Christianity, cafeterias. Um, It's probably been a while since you've been at a cafeteria. You've been at a cafeteria before and what I'm talking about. Remember those? Uh, You get your tray and you set it down on the counter, a big old smorgasbord, and you're going to go down the line. You're going to take what you want and you're not going to take what you don't want. Right? So yeah, you get there, you put your tray on, and, and immediately you probably come to the salads first. And you're thinking, well, maybe I should put a salad on here to make it look like I'm going to be healthy. But you're not going to be healthy. It's a smorgasbord. And so you're, you're looking at all of this stuff. Then you start seeing the other stuff that they call salad, but it's not really salad. It's like potato salad or fruit salad, but those aren't salads. And then you see a salad, you know that pink salad that, that's got marshmallows in it? Yeah, that salad. I'll take that one. Uh put that on my tray. Uh you, you go down the line, you see some of the jello and uh jello that has shredded carrots in it, and you're wondering, What? Why? Don't do that, right? You you keep going down the line and uh you see the good stuff, you see some steak and some fish and some chicken, you're like, Yep, I'll take that and that and that and nope on the lima beans. Never lima beans. Can we all just agree that's probably on the menu in hell? (laughs) Lima beans are awful. So anyway, nope, 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 nope on the lima beans. I'm going to go and pile on the potatoes, and then you get to the desserts. And yes, the desserts, strawberry shortcake. uh Uh-huh, go ahead and put the whipped cream on there. You have ice cream? Yes, please give me the sprinkles. You take what you want, and then you leave what you don't want. That's what people do with God. They look at scripture. They look at who they believe God is. And they take what they want and they leave what they don't want. Like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and I'll take a little bit of that, that grace, please. But I don't want any judgment. Or I'll take a double portion of your blessings. But I'm not interested in discipline. Judgment. I like that verse that says that God has a plan to prosper me, to bless me, not to harm me. I don't like the verse on generosity. I don't want to believe in a God who would have me do something that I don't want to do. I want a God who is fit into my image. I want a God who revolves his world around me. We begin to pick and choose a God in our making. We begin to push away uh, this idea of the wrath of God being poured out on sin. The idea that we are sinners. We don't want to talk about the judgment of God, but we'll take extra portions of God is great and God is good. Thank you for this food and all the good things you can bless me with. It is the modern day version of idolatry. It used to be, People would have idolatry. They would find a block of wood or a block of stone and they would get a hammer and they get a chisel and they start pounding away on that block of wood and there's there's wood shavings on the floor and eventually they sweep that up. They take the little image that they have made, they put it in their house and they start talking to it. But nowadays we don't use a hammer and chisel, we use scissors and paste. I'm going to cut out this part in the Bible. Not really interested in that. I believe we've evolved since that period. God can't be like that. He wouldn't look at sin that way. And we'll just paste over this. It is a cafeteria style Christianity where we begin to make a God in our own image. And the reason that we do that is because we're wicked. All of us. But we don't like that either. I don't want to be called wicked. I don't want to look at my sin. I don't want to come face to face with the darkness in my heart. But we're wicked. This is what the Bible says in Psalm 36, verse 1. Transgression, that would be sin, that would be wrongdoing. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So transgression speaks. Sin speaks. And what does sin say? Go ahead and do it. Just do it. Live a little bit. It's not that bad because God is this great big old marshmallow in heaven and he'll look the other way. He's really not all that concerned. And we convince ourselves we're not that bad. You, you, you don't have to give in and, and do this God thing and just make it all serious in your life. In fact, what we begin to do with sin is we begin to excuse it away and find every way that we can do that. It's happened for centuries now. We will, we will, you step into sin the very first time. The Bible talks about the harlot and the harlot having uh, no shame. He says of Israel, you have the forehead of a harlot, meaning there is no shame in you, there there is no blushing. The first time a harlot engages in something she knows that she should not do, there is shame, there is blushing. Her hands may be shaking knowing that she's doing a wrong thing. The second time, not so much. Then she begins to invite her friends to take part because the more people that you can get involved doing what you are doing, maybe pass some laws and make it seem like it's okay. Now all of a sudden we have squelched What it means to be wicked and to have sin and we are creating a God and fashioning him in whatever image will fit our society and our sin and what we want to do. Verse two. For he, the wicked flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. He flatters himself. I'm so glad I'm not wicked. I'm not wicked. Other people are wicked. I know wicked people. They're the jerks down the street that I don't like, but I'm not wicked. What I'm doing is not sinful. But what if this verse is speaking to me and to you who like to convince ourselves that we do not have sin and we are not that bad, but the Bible says that there is no one who does good, not one. No one is righteous. And it tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. What if in our conceitedness, in our self-righteous autonomy and putting ourselves in a better light, we have begun to push away the fact that we are sinners. We are wicked. And we don't fear God. Now I know I've been using the, the phrase fear God and I've not really defined it yet. And perhaps you're thinking, well, are you saying I have to be like afraid of God? I need to be terrified of God. Let me just say that a little bit of fear and trembling in our lives of a holy God is not a bad thing. Philippians 2 verse 12 says, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So go, go ahead and get a little bit of fear and trembling when you begin to think about this holy God, his holiness and his righteousness. And I know this kind of conversation of fear God, we don't like to talk about that. There's certain phrases that we go ahead and just kind of no longer say in Christian circles. We don't talk about the fear of God. We don't talk about the jealousy of God. I've heard people who would say, well, I can't believe in a God who is jealous. So you're saying you can't believe in a God who would long for your affection for him only that you can go ahead and have other gods. Yeah, I don't believe in a jealous God. Uh, I don't believe in fearing God. I I, I can't be afraid of him. My God is not a God of wrath. My God is a God of love. Let me ask you, how many gods are there? Is there a God for you and a God for me? Is there a God of love and then there's a different God of wrath? And we begin to push away the things that are are difficult for our hearts that have been elevated and we put ourselves in a self-righteous position. And we look at things like the the Old Testament and we say, well, that's gotta be a different God. That guy just seems mean. He is not fair. I mean, here he is wiping people out. And in the New Testament, he doesn't seem like that at all. He seems more marshmallow-like. I mean, Jesus is representing him. He's a nice guy. Let me say this. Yes, Jesus is a great, good God. He is loving. He is patient. But he's also filled with judgment. When he comes back, he's got a sword Dripping in blood. In the Old Testament, we think, well, how could God, like, like he's got all these laws, 30 different laws and you can die? What's going on? What's interesting is that's displaying his mercy because the Bible tells us just one sin results in death. How is it that anybody survived in the Old Testament? He begins to narrow it down and says, okay, these 30, and then you're going to get death. How is that? He is displaying his mercy. He is long-suffering. Every time you look in the scripture and something happens that begins to be like, oh, that God is filled with wrath. That can't be the same God. Nope, same God, very merciful, very patient, providing time until the fullness of time when he sends his son, Jesus Christ, and we're introduced to something more than just mercy, and that's the grace of God for a period of time. But his wrath upon sin remains. And we have to deal with that God. This is the God who has revealed himself to us through creation and through scripture. And I can't just stand up here and tell you, God is love, God is love, God is love. There's only goodness. There's nothing bad. You don't have to worry about anything and not give you a clear picture of who God is. Shame on me and anybody who opens up the word of God and just kind of pretends and hides the character of who God is. Think about this God. Think about this God. What kind of God is able to say a word and universes exist? This is the God. This God, he is the one who says, let there be. And there is. And we have people stumbling all over themselves, trying to explain away creation and creativity and not saying there is a master creator of all of this. Like I think they would say it got started with like a bang and then everything kind of got rolling and evolving since then. Doesn't make sense. If there was nothing, there will always be nothing. Nothing equals nothing continually. There had to be something. And what God has declared through creation is He is the something that is eternal, who spoke, and then it existed. That's the God we're talking about. Not a marshmallow, a powerful God in heaven. Let there be, and creativity, light, power, everything beginning to exist out of him. Not on its own, not of its own accord, but from him, that God. What kind of being does that? An autonomous, majestic being who does what he wants to do. This is the same God who says that sin demands death. He looks at a generation of people and there's no one righteous. And yet in his mercy, he saves a handful of people, puts them on an ark and wipes everybody out. Because of sin. This is the God who descends upon Mount Sinai like his presence on the mountain, thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai. And he says to all the people, don't touch the mountain or you'll die. This is the God who opens up the earth and swallows those who are disobedient and disrespectful to his servant, Moses, that God. He's the same God. This is the God that we are talking about. And when we talk about Fearing that God and not just be like, "Ah, I've created this little image of him, but knowing this God, we're speaking of his holiness, his holiness, his holy otherness. He is set apart. He is like no other. We're talking about his transcendent majesty. Again, the fact that he is high, above, exalted, not like us at all. He is a supreme being. You and I were human beings, different. A being is to be. He has always been, he is now, and he always will be. You and I have not always been. And in fact, we're changing. He's not changing. You and I, we're getting older. You've gotten older since you've been sitting here. You're like, yeah, this is a long sermon. I just feel it. Like, (laughs) you and I, we're dying. He's not dying. You and I, we are dependent. We are dependent. He's not dependent. We need oxygen. He doesn't need oxygen. We need water and coffee. He doesn't need water and coffee. He needs, he doesn't need food. We need food. We are dependent on this God for our next heartbeat. You aren't making your heartbeat. He is. He is a supreme being. He is the one in whom nobody can look on his face and live. He is the God who is ever present, all knowing, all Powerful. He's this one that we just have this 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 respect for him. That's what it is to fear him. This divine wow. You are other, you are wholly righteous in and of yourself. You are dependent on no other thing. And the more that you get to know this God you know his power, you know his nature, you know his glory and his majesty, the more you stand in awe of this God. And then when you realize that God loves you so much in spite of your wickedness, in spite of your unholiness, in spite of your corruption, you begin to look at that God and say, I can't believe you would love me. And want to be eminent, close to me. And now you start to want to serve him, not out of like, I am terrified of you, but I respect you and I love you and I will serve you all the days of my life. That God. And yet we don't fear him. We create a God in our image. It's practical atheism. I believe there's a God, but I don't fear him. I want to show you what happens when we actually get to know this God and have this healthy respect, this divine wow of who He is. You begin to serve Him and love Him unconditionally, wholeheartedly. And all too often, what we have in our relationship with God are conditions. All right, all right, I'll serve God, but I'm not going to stop sleeping with my girlfriend. I'll serve God. I'm not going to tithe. I'll serve God, but I'm not going to stop looking at stuff on the internet that I want to. We make it conditional. But when you truly love God, you begin to obey him without any conditions. And yet we live in this world that is increasingly disobedient to that God. When you fear God, you will obey God. Let me give you an example. Old Testament, Abraham. So sin has entered the world because mankind is sinful. We decided to rebel against God. That sin, all sin deserves death. But God in his mercy isn't wiping people out left and right because he's got a bigger plan. And he's gonna work through individuals. He's going to work through his nation. He begins to work through an individual by the name of Abraham. He's going to make him into a nation. Abraham didn't have any kids, though. How are you going to have a nation with no kids? At the age of 100, he finally has a son, Isaac. And so God says, hey, Abraham, I want you to take your son, Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And so in one of the greatest displays of obedience I've ever come across, Abraham takes his son, Isaac, goes up on top of a mountain, lays him on an altar, raises a knife over Isaac, and then God says this. He said, do not lay your hand on that boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The greatest evidence of obedience to God, the evidence that we fear him is when we will obey God. God's not going to ask somebody to do that particular thing again, but in that moment, God spoke to him specifically, loudly, clearly. We have so many other instructions and commands from God. And yet what we have today is cafeteria Christianity, cultural Christianity, where we decide, I'm going to make a God in my image. I'm going to pick and choose what I want from this God and the way that I view him. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. He says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And the greatest evidence of the fear of God is obedience to him. And yet here's what drives so many people. What drives people nowadays, like, uh, into church is a consumeristic mindset. Like, what, what can I get from God? Then I'll serve you. God, God, if you can fix my life, I'll think about serving you. God, God, if you, if you can heal me, you can heal my loved one. I'm going to give you a chance, God. And if you do for me what I want you to do, I might show up at church. I might serve you. Okay, you don't have any need for God if your marriage is going great. But if your marriage is on the rocks, you're going to need God to fix your spouse. If, if you're doing fine financially, you don't need God. You lose your job, well, all of a sudden, God's got your attention. God, you got one shot. You get this wrong, and I'm out of here. Not interested. But the thing with God is when you truly learn who he is and begin to fear him, he isn't just going to simply prosper you, make your life 10 15 30% better. He's actually going to ruin your life in the best kind of way. Because when you get to know this God that you truly fear, you will never, ever be the same. The things that you used to love, eh, you don't love them the same way any longer. You've got a different mission. You have a different worldview. Everything changes when you fear God. I want you to look at another passage. We're going to go to the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. Okay, in Isaiah, so the way that you're going to get there, uh, if you brought your your Bible that has paper, uh, get to the middle where it says Psalms, and then keep flipping to the right. You're going to get to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Then you're going to get to Isaiah. Isaiah is a big book. He's a major prophet. He's not major because he's just super important more than other prophets. It's because it's a major book. It's a larger book. Now, Isaiah, he is a prophet of God. So if you're going to look at people and kind of rank them on the planet at that time, 700 years before Jesus showed up, you're going to put Isaiah at the top. This dude is hearing from God. He's living for God. He is a righteous man. He's a holy man, we would say. And God is going to reveal himself to Isaiah. Again, we're talking about the fact that when you fear God, everything changes. When you see him for who he is, we're going to see him for who he is. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. All right, a little bit of history here. Uzziah. Uzziah was a king there in Israel for 50 years. So imagine, I mean, you've grown up with this king, uh, your whole family has seen this king, and then eventually this king that you have known and loved, he dies. So Isaiah is saying, in the year that our world got turned upside down, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. And that word Lord right there, that's the most common term for God. The word Lord there in the Hebrew is the name Adonai. Adonai. I saw Adonai sitting on his throne. And Adonai is a title. Adonai means the supreme one, the, the one who is above everything else. So it's interesting. Uh, the, the king who would have been, Uzziah would have been the sovereign one uh, among the people of Israel. But when the sovereign king there died, he's saying, I didn't see Uzziah. I saw the Adonai. I saw the supreme sovereign ruler of all things. He says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw Adonai sitting upon a throne. Now that word Adonai again, we're going to see the name Lord again in a moment. And it's in verse three. And if you jump ahead and you look at verse 3, if you've got a Bible like mine, it's going to have the word Lord spelled differently. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that's the author's way, the person who is you know, giving us this information to say, this is a different name for God. This is God's proper name. This is his name. Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh. That is, I am who I am. Yahweh. If you remember Moses, he's encountering the presence of God in a burning bush. He goes to see why the bush isn't burning, walks up to it, uh, told to remove his sandals. Uh, God begins to speak. He says, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to free people from their bondage. And Moses says, well, they're not going to believe me. Who should I tell them sent me? What's your name? And God says, I am who I am, Yahweh, meaning I have always been i am now and i always will be yahweh it is his holy name in fact it's so holy that when god begins to establish a nation and gives them a constitution with 10 rules he makes one of the 10 rules don't take the name of yahweh in vain it's so important that when jesus comes along and they say hey teach us how to pray jesus says here's how you should pray our father who art in heaven that's his address Holy is your name, Yahweh. I am who I am. You are not, I am. I am holy and set apart. He says, I saw Adonai sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So you got to picture it. It's not like, well, it's just kind of spilling over the throne. No, his robe is filling the whole temple. It is unfurled. It is majestic. Above him stood the seraphim. These are angels. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So these are angels, and we're being described here what kind of function they have. Everything that God makes has a specific function. We're told about these six wings. Everything has a function. You you and I have a function. We've got lungs. We've been made because we're not living like in water. Fish, they have gills because they live in water. Everything serves a purpose, and God makes it that way for a reason. Everything except for cats. But we all... We all have a a purpose, a function, and these angelic beings have a purpose. How many wings does it take for these angels to fly? Two. They don't need the six wings to fly. Their other wings are serving another function. It says with two, they covered their face. Why are these angels covering their face? They are standing in the glorious presence of Yahweh, I am in his holiness and they can't look at him. They have been made for heaven. They're heavenly beings and they can't even look into God's face. I mean, every time we see the presence of God, what we have is his presence, the Shekinah glory of God. We see, see brightness. Remember Moses, he's interacting with God and the presence of God is among him, not just transcendent, but eminent among Moses. And Moses says, hey, God, I want to see you. Nobody else is around. Can I just get a peek at your face? Can I see you? And God's like, no, you can't see me and live. You'll die. He says, here's what I can do. God says, I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. I'm going to pass by. I'm going to shield you. And you can take a little peek at who I am. And he gets a little peek at who God is. When he's in the presence, the glorious presence of God, Moses comes down the mountain. What's going on with his face? It's glowing. It's like a nightstick, a nightlight. And everybody's like, cover your face. We don't want to see your face. Why would they say cover your face? Wouldn't we be like, ooh, that's cool. Show us the trick, Moses. What's going on? Moses had been in the inner sanctum, the sacred. He had been among the sacred and he begins to glow. And anytime people come in the midst of something that is sacred, the natural response is fear. Fear. These angels are in the presence of God and they're covering their eyes. They can't even look at him. And with two, they're covering their feet. What's going on? Again, remember, Moses, the burning bush. Moses, take off your sandals for the place that you're standing is holy. The ground wasn't holy. The bush wasn't holy. Moses wasn't holy. The presence of God is holy. So in the presence of God, they are covering their feet. Listen to what they say. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So they're singing and they're singing and Tiffany, they're just going back and forth. They're like, holy, holy, holy. Anytime something is important, it gets repeated. Remember Jesus in the New Testament, many times as he's teaching, he would say, truly, Truly, right? Verily, verily. In the actual language, it's amen, amen. So be it, so be it. And this is the only time in all of scripture that an attribute of God is raised to this level, raised to the superlative. We're never told that God is love, love, love. We are told that he is holy, holy, holy. In fact, what's interesting If you jump ahead 700 years, you find a guy by the name of John who has a revelation of God. And he goes to the throne room of God. Do you know what was there when John showed up? These angels with six wings, 700 years later. Do you know what they're saying? Holy, holy, holy. And John tells us that they're doing this night and day. Like they don't end and they haven't ended since Isaiah saw them. And what I believe is happening, this is opinion, I think they go around the throne of God continuously. And on every pass, every time, they're seeing something unique about this one who is wholly other- Who is so unlike anything else, and he is glorious and beautiful, and they look and they see something new, and they say to the other, holy, and they're like, yeah, holy, holy. They're not content to just say God is holy or even holy, holy. No, he is holy, holy, holy. That is what's happening in this moment. In in the book of Revelation, they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Who is the I am, has always been, is now, and always will be. Unlike anybody, anything else. Then watch this. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. I look at that and I think, we've got inanimate objects shaking in the presence of God. And I'm reminded that you and I don't come in to the presence of God all puffed up demanding our will and our way. The presence of God... Like, if you're praying the presence of God would show up in this place, if the presence of God shows up in this place, I think my knees are buckling. And I believe that repentance happens. Because you don't stand in the presence of something that's holy and say, you know what, I don't like that part of you. I'll take this part of you. And if you could begin to revolve your throne around me, well, then we'll be fine. No, you get in the presence of this one who is holy, not a God that you've made in your own image. And the only response is what... Isaiah is about to say, he says, woe is me. He's never going to be the same again. He says, woe is me. He is pronouncing a curse on himself. It's an oracle. Often you would hear, woe unto you, Bethsaida. Woe unto you, Jesus would say, you teachers of the law. He would pronounce a curse. Isaiah is pronouncing a curse on himself. The most righteous, holy person on planet earth, woe is me, I For I am lost. Other versions say I'm undone. I'm coming apart. I'm coming apart at the seams. I am disintegrating in the presence of God. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Yahweh of hosts. In the presence of God, there is this glaring difference between man's corruption and God's holiness. The glory of God shining on anything in man of man. It highlights what's going on. The Bible tells us there is no one righteous, not one. It says that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. You take the most righteous person, the most righteous thing you've ever done. You begin to put it in this throne room before God and it cannot stand. You see it for what it is. It is wicked. It is not like God. And so Isaiah sees himself as he truly is. And I think the fact of the matter is, Isaiah doesn't really know who he was until he saw who God is. And you don't really know who you are until you know who God is. He's not a concept you have fashioned in your mind. He is who he is. And for Isaiah, he would never be the same. He would never go back to normal. He begins to confess his sin before God Those angels, one of them goes and gets tongs and takes a burning coal with that tong and touches the lips of Isaiah, and he's cleansed. A picture, again, of God's mercy not wiping Isaiah out in the moment. A picture of the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God to take our sinfulness and cleanse us so that we could even be in the presence of the one who is so other. Next verse says this. He says, and I heard a voice, the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And in that moment, Isaiah doesn't say, well, <clears throat> is there a retirement plan? Are you going to send me someplace that's dangerous? No. He says, pick me. Choose, choose me. God never says, come unto me without saying, go ye. There's not a soul that gets cleansed that isn't then sent. And Isaiah is saying, look, if you are going to forgive me and you're going to cleanse me of my filthy mouth and you're going to love me, man, I will go everywhere I can to speak of your mercy and your grace as far as I can. But it happened when he understood who he was and he was ruined in the presence of God. And I'm afraid not many of us. Have been ruined in that way. Well, we believe there's a God, but we don't fear Him. In our culture, we have a cafeteria Christianity, a cafeteria conception of who God is. Let's pray. God, again, we have to come to this moment where only you can do work. Some guy with a microphone doesn't do it. My words fall short. My words are meaningless if they're mine. But if it's your word and your spirit landing on a heart in this moment who is receptive to you, to fear you, to repent of their sin, that's your work. And Father, I pray that you would do that. Please start with me. Reveal any wicked way in me. Break my heart. Help me to look at sin in my life and be disgusted. Father, for the person who may be the furthest one from you today, the heart that has been wandering, a heart that has been hiding for their heart, reveal yourself as well not as some image that they've made up in their mind, but you, the one true living God, shake us to the core of who we are for your namesake and for your glory. Convict us of sin our uncleanliness. Remind us of the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, the eminence of your presence in this moment. I would just say that in your own heart right now, if there's something that's been going on, you've been far from God, you've, you've created a God in your own image, you've not seen him for who he truly is, but in this moment, he's been doing something miraculous in your heart. I would just remind you once again that this God who is other and is holy, who is merciful is also grace-filled because he sent his son, he came himself, bled on a cross for that sin, he died for that sin, having done nothing wrong, was buried in a tomb. Three days later, he ascended out, out of that tomb victorious over death hell sin the grave and he sits now at the right hand of the father and he is merciful providing an opportunity for you to walk away from sin and to walk into his glorious presence and it can happen with a yes a yielding of your heart you can pray in your heart right now lord jesus save me, cleanse me, please wash away my sin. I want your righteousness. I don't have any of my own. I've gone my own way. I've been doing my own thing. But today I want to go your way and I want to do your thing. Thank you for loving me. I surrender my whole life to you. Make me new. Help me to know you. Help me to fear you. Help me to love you. Thank you, Father, for new life that you give to me. Lord, I thank you for every heart that has kind of made this move closer to your heart. Thank you for revealing yourself to us today. Help us not to walk out of this place and say, well, we had a nice time with God. Help us to truly live in you. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing in this place, in each heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.